0: Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss
1: their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe.
0: I'm your host, Rocket, And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Today we're speaking with Kent Gregoire, and Kent is an entrepreneur, consultant, speaker, and angel investor. He's now one of seven certified conscious capitalism consultants around the world. His goal is to foster the widespread adoption of conscious capitalism around the world. He's the founder and CEO of Symphony Advantage, and did you start that in 1985? I did in 85, yes. Wow. Symphony Advantage designs evolutionary business models for the triple bottom line, people, planet, and profit. To do so, he relies on the four pillars of conscious capitalism, higher purpose, stakeholder capitalism, conscious leadership, and caring culture. This is Raya Borel Kent, Also the co-founder of something relatively new, stakeholder business. Stakeholder business is a collaboration between three inspired humans or care deeply about ushering in the next paradigm of capitalism, where business is building a world that works for everybody. He's been a board member for Entrepreneurs Organization, and is the president of the U.S. Eastbridge chapter. Uh, EO is one of the world's most influential communities of entrepreneurs supporting today's business owners in all aspects of their journey. And as we found out, he's a farmer and lives <laughs> on a farm. Yeah, welcome to Sustainable Minds.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah. So let's jump right into this. You started your company in 1985. Were you focused on conscious capitalism then, or was it some other shape or form?
2: I'd say it was some other shape or form. My first larger company that I started about the same time I got a little off path. My father had an opportunity who was a really extraordinary entrepreneur to watch me as a young entrepreneur. He wasn't involved in the company, but he could sense what was going on. And he felt that I was losing my way. I certainly, it was a very successful endeavor financially and otherwise, but he felt that I had no real purpose, no real meaning behind the way in which I was using resources. And I certainly was born with values of deep, deep level of care and trust, which today is actually something spoken about significantly within conscious capitalism. And he felt that I wasn't demonstrating the values I was raised with. And there were other things that he shared with me. And it caused me to really have to sit back and examine where did this come from? It clearly was somebody who's pretty young as an entrepreneur. Ego was coming into play. and. And I was really a very avid reader. I went through a great university, but certainly Harvard Business Review was one of the things I consumed and actually owned all back issues for many decades. (laughs) <laughs> so you might say I was really a consuming a lot of more traditional capitalism, Milton Friedman, who was also had come in and was a visiting professor during some of my courses in university. So I got off path and he helped me begin to see that there was a different way of doing business and evolved over time.
0: Uh, the two thoughts there is what is, wow, we had a very enlightened father, <laughs> okay. right? And, and second, You weren't so ego-driven that you didn't listen and that you didn't reject everything and that there was something there that resonated with you. And maybe you always listened to your father. I know at a certain age, I stopped listening to my father and then I started again. But that's fantastic. I was going to ask you if you had an aha aha moment along this path.
2: Yeah, I would say that it it continued to grow, and one of the opportunities working with so many entrepreneurs, I became more disheartened by the way in which people were being treated, you know, now from a human perspective. And it wasn't just employees, it was all stakeholders, and I felt there was going to be a better way to do it. One of the big moments was when I met John Mackey, the co-founder of Conscious Capitalism. I happened to be in the audience. I didn't know him. I only knew of Conscious Capitalism for about three weeks before this event at Emory at the Ethics Institute. And in his audience, yes, exactly. And yes, I'd read the book before I went, well, no, I'd read a different book that he had penned with another author. And uh, so it was kind of my foray into it. I then went to my first CEO summit with Conscious Capitalism and being in the company of others that I could relate to, um, really did create a much bigger aha moment. And that's when I said, wow, you know, I didn't know there were others that were thinking and trying to do things like I am. This means I found my community and that that really did shift things. And that's when I became committed to say, that's how I'm going to do business and there's so much to learn.
0: Yeah, it's exciting. Um, we have a little parallel path here. We do corporate branding and I don't do so much business plans but a corporate brand helps shape a business plan, and we bring in a lot of those elements into brand. Brand's a very limiting word, and we'll talk more about that later. But I'm really interested to know how you design evolutionary business models for yeah. the bottom line.
2: Well, I think one of the things about evolutionary business models is, first of all, to determine, is the strategy going to be a stakeholder model or is it going to be something else? In my case, it's a stakeholder model. It's a very sustainable model. And it gives us an opportunity to have real depth in our purpose. Is that purpose going to create better environment in our community. It doesn't have to be the globe, right? It could be within our community and that community can be geographical or otherwise. Is it going to be to society or might it be greater influence within our industry? So to me, it's really important when I think about the evolutionary business model is one in which we set targets and we begin to make progress towards those targets. I've never been a big goal person. A lot of people find that quite interesting when they start working with me. I'm not very goal-oriented. I'm very target-oriented. I want to look at something in a bigger picture, and I want to measure the incremental um, improvement, this progress that's being made. So when I think of this evolutionary model, it's a lot of different things that come in that help support it. But certainly from a stakeholder model, it's considering the needs that all the stakeholders have and helping to... You know, really optimize the value that each of them receive as a result of the model.
0: And where does sustainability come into this model?
2: Well, sustainability wouldn't actually, meaning from the standpoint of environmental sustainability, let's yeah. say. Yeah, uh,
0: environmental, uh, social, you know. Yeah,
2: absolutely. It's critical. It needs to be part of the purpose. What is the worthy problem that's being solved? And we're very specific about that in purpose. has to solve a worthy problem for society. It could be planet, it could be environment. It needs to actually solve a worthy problem. Not just a problem for a customer, but something much greater than the company itself. And when that problem is solved, that will be a long time in the future because the idea is to have something that's really, really large and it's inspiring and to create the opportunity for employees to show up and deliver the kind of creativity and value that's needed. Great case is interface carpet, which I know quite a bit about and is certainly the leading example in the world on sustainability. So
1: great. I was just wondering, it the higher purpose. I mean, from our point of view, because we do corporate branding, you know, it's really similar to what the company stands for. What are you trying to do in the world? What are you trying to contribute to that greater good? And I just wondered, with one of the pillars of conscience, consciousness being uh, leadership, conscious leadership, how. You, is it possible to really teach that, or does it really have to be inherent in a leader? And because everything mm-hmm. seems to cascade down from that for yeah. me uh, the culture and the stakeholder orientation. Everything for me really seems to, if it's not at the top, you're going to have a hard time getting it to it be embodied in a business.
2: It must be at the top. And I would say that it is something that can be learned. There's usually an epiphany that happens. Going back to Interface, Ray Anderson, he has an epiphany. It was very, very significant. And he said, you know, I'm a plunder of the earth. We, It's carpet tiles, carpet manufacturing. I've got to do something that, you know, I'm just destroying the earth. And he chose to really move that agenda forward as a leader by putting out their amount of sustainability. And he wanted to have a place in which it would be a restorative company. And the ante kept getting um, larger and larger, but not because he said it needed to be larger, but because the employees, they were being successful, they were reaching these targets, and they had that opportunity. So when you have a leader that's willing to stand really strong to the purpose And to use a stakeholder approach involve the employees and all the stakeholders what seems impossible absolutely becomes possible then that's where we get amazing organizations around not just innovation which is key but where employees truly become engaged not as a means of manipulation but as a means by which people see the value and the meaning of the work that they're doing is benefiting somebody much greater than themselves and when they're tied into that purpose. So I believe that it can be taught. I believe that people can learn it. I think using the word maybe not so much taught, I think that's probably not quite how it happens, but people can learn and they can appreciate, but usually it's an epiphany by the CEO is the most successful situation.
0: Now, I'm curious, and I've worked with people that have this epiphany. They came upon it themselves. Sometimes I've worked with people on a lot of talk, and gee, they've told me that this has been really cathartic. What do you find? Do you help them with this aha moment, or do they have to do you feel they have to arrive there on their own discovery? Well, if we certainly see it both ways, we're not going to necessarily
2: work with somebody who's not already inclined to say, you know, I'm open, I'm a learner, I have that growth mindset, I see that things are not right. The question becomes. Are they truly willing to make a commitment to the purpose like, and to begin to demonstrate their commitment there? And that's when it gets really tough for them because some of the decisions they need to make may look very, very different and feel very uncomfortable. They can hard short-term earnings as an example, right? Although it strengthens the company and creates more sustainable business model for future generations, as well as create more value for themselves, not just monetarily, but all kinds of value. And when we think about legacy, I know that the term has different, I think it's starting to redefine itself. I look at legacy and I'm not sure that I have it to articulate the way I'd like to yet. But I think a legacy is that opportunity in which we've created something that's so much more valuable than ourselves. It's not about us. It's about what's now been created that improves the lives of others in it. It has more of a societal impact or an environmental impact That is when I believe we can arrive at a sustainable business model. And that's what we're looking for. It's going to take a tipping point. Our company's aim is the 16% of businesses in North America, actually represented by employees, but 16% of the businesses in North America are following stakeholder capitalism. And when they do that, we look at that traditional curve and all that, you know, kind of go back to Malcolm Gladwell. When you're at that 16%, that means there's no going back. So finding more and more people who are willing to make that commitment is really absolutely outstanding. We're seeing it in our own work, in our society, the people who have made that commitment and the benefits that they're receiving individually, but through their companies and and much larger through the world, frankly, is probably the most heart-touching work I have, not probably, it is the most heart-touching work I've ever done because these are not what I call trophy moments. These are like having to pull all of this together over time and actually demonstrate stakeholder capitalism works. It's extraordinary and it can lift the lives of so many people, not just a few.
1: How do you operation wise within a company? I mean, yeah. you have the CEO having that, that aha moment and then making the commitment, but how do you really get it down into? forming a culture of it that we often see because, you know, we're involved in brand strategy and things like that. And it's great, but it's sometimes not really lived within the company. We get it. We struggle to get it lived.
2: Yeah. And for us, what, um, and certainly in my experience, it's through um, really engaging very deeply with your stakeholders and having your stakeholders identify With that meaning, what does it represent for them and how does that fit into where the company is going? There's got to be a very symbiotic relationship. It's not just the employee stakeholders. We've got to really look at all the talent that can be our suppliers, that certainly can be shareholders. It's all of the talent involved, but it's not something you can talk to. You've got to have it as a a method in which it's a very collaborative experience because if you're trying to say the only people i'm going to hire are the people who already agree with me well that's not going to work because that's automatically going to set it up for disaster i was reading a good article today but there was something i saw in the article that i i saw as a flaw it has to do with what are you going to measure around esg as an example and they were talking a lot about data and they were actually talking about, in essence, what I would call operationalizing it. And what I saw was a lot of silo. Okay, to operationalize your people, you have to go to HR. Up oh, That right there is a problem. Not because HR is a problem, but because to operationalize your people to do what needs to be done isn't a siloed opportunity. You have to actually involve everybody in it. And it's no longer just HR's responsibility. So I would say it's really important. Companies have to begin to look at it's more of a bottom-up approach certainly not a hierarchical, definitely not hierarchical.
1: Well, that begs the question for me because I was reading books about conscious capitalism before... The Business Table revised a statement. Yeah, the Business Roundtable in 2000, I think it was 19, revising the purpose of a corporation. And then also the real importance of ESG reporting turning into really being a part of the business proposition or evaluation of a healthy future for a company. So I'm wondering how, you know, these pieces sort of how you feel about how all these pieces came together
2: and fit. Yeah, I'll speak directly to ESG. I could speak about different aspects of various different, whether it be the SDGs specifically. I think one of the challenges that have been inherent is, and going back to ESG, is that it's oftentimes been seen as an initiative and it's truly not operationalized. There's more and more efforts to operationalize it, but when times get tough, ESGs oftentimes lose their emphasis. So that's when we look at like the layers of leadership. Where is a company at? That's really like a four, level four out of six, because that's where we begin to see the imbalance of how stakeholders are being treated. So until we have a balance of stakeholders in the optimization, it's not operationalized. So every single decision that's being made has to be thought of in terms of How is this going to be operationalized? How are we really going to bring this around so that it's successful, not just for one stakeholder, but for all the stakeholders who are especially directly impacted? We certainly know employees and customers are often always impacted by most decisions. But we also have to remember the real power in our suppliers and in our communities Although communities sometimes are difficult to deal with because communities have learned corporations can be difficult to deal with and they don't always want to work with, you know, communities don't always want to work with corporations, right? So we have to begin to help organizations see how to embrace community in that process. ESG, and I'm only bringing that one up because it came up, but I could say this is true with many of the things that are really important and are helping to move the needle they tend to be more of um, initiative and truly not operationalized. That's really not an opinion of mine. There's been a lot of studies done on that. Something we're particularly key to. We're also, as a company, stakeholder business being very agnostic. We actually saw our society members as an example. We have B Corps, we have public company, non-public companies. We have people who are doing, you know, SDGs. We have people doing this. We have people in B Labs. but people all over, right? And... What we believe is that you have to choose what's really your call to, what you feel is right, but to go really deep, you're gonna have to figure out how to operationalize it. And so bringing the CEOs together so they're talking with each other is one of the kinds of support we feel is essential. Learn from those who've already done it, learn from those who are doing it and create a much richer learning environment.
0: We work with a company that probably about 28,000 employees and I don't know, half a dozen years ago, we helped them sort of define the purpose. They once had 10 values that they really revere, and through a lot of chaos, you know, kind of lost their way with that. But it still sort of lives in what I call the heart and soul of the companies, you know? And there was a real desire to pull those back out and use those as their guide, as their light to light their path. And especially this notion of purpose. And I once heard the CEO say, oh, we have many purposes here. And I go, gosh. So, But he did have that epiphany and he did come around. And when we worked with them, talked to all levels of people within this big organization, went to them with our findings and our recommendations and sat down with the leadership team, who was really all into this sincerely. And we brought them this, this clay that we've molded, but they had to sh- put their fingerprints on it and help shape that. And even this morning, I read on LinkedIn where they talked about, he talked about his leadership team was awarded for something and he'd thank them, but he cited that we all live our purpose and values here at this company. So a lot of people may think this topic is a bunch of we <laughs> doesn't really live but it lives in companies of all different types and sizes one would be amazed
1: well it's sort of ironic to me that when you talk about all the things about capital conscious capitalism that you know a lot of it has to do with really feeling out employees customers you know community suppliers all these sort of And yet, the thing that really moved the needle as far as people adopting it was investors, was when it became important to investors because research showed that long term, those companies make more profit when they're sustainable and when they have a lot of these qualities that they're stakeholder oriented and not just stakeholder oriented. And I wonder how you feel about that and where you see investors at this point being a driver.
2: Yeah, well, I think right now there's a little bit of turbulence um, out there. However, I think that's very temporary because we continue to see more interest, uh, more money going toward companies that are actually doing the work that needs to be done to help right society, to create this world that works for everyone. I would also say that there are... It's going to take some time. It's going to take some time. It has more to do with the size of the organization also, or maybe the characteristic. I found that organizations that are more entrepreneurial founded and having had enough of them myself and being around lots of entrepreneurs today through EO, YPO, other organizations, I would say that entrepreneurs sometimes are more laggards in the change. And I think it has to do with a more traditional aspect of I put in all this time and this energy, I committed my home, you know, I put my family at risk to start my company, whatever those stories might be, or they're telling themselves, then become the notion of then therefore, I should be getting everything back. So we kind of have two sides of that. I think when we start going to companies that are looking for private equity, we have a very strong relationship with KKR and KKR companies. They're very much looking and they're really looking for companies to be under ownership works, right? Employee ownership is a really big initiative of theirs. So we're seeing different movements. But the other thing I think that's really telling, we do see some what I'd say sound bites in the media that I think are somewhat misleading to actually what employees, what stakeholders and what investors, what consumers, what buyers are saying. The majority of us, and that's true in North America, when I mean majority, like 70 to 80%, I don't know where the stats are today, but it's well above 70% say, we believe it's a company's responsibility to address these problems. I want to work for a company that's starting to make change or is already on the path, and I'm identifying with companies that already are doing this work when I spend my money. Many examples came up during COVID. People sometimes had less money to spend. They were spending more money, meaning for a cup of coffee, let's just use as an example, I'm not choosing a brand, but they would be more likely to spend more money with a brand that they believed in for a cup of coffee than to go to 7-Eleven as an example, which may have great coffee, but it's a lot less. Maybe they didn't believe in the 7-Eleven brand so, you know, you're in the branding business. You certainly know that people are speaking up in the way that they spend their money. But I do think the media does skew it a little bit, maybe a lot. Some people seem to have big voices and therefore it's what's in the press. We have it might be interesting to go into what our kind of what I would call our domains of influence are and have what we're doing to help shift that influence so that part of it's through media.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, I think when you touch on that, your, the value of reputation and behind that reputation being real tenants of how you conduct business. And for us, I mean, we've been in business for 30, 35 years, and the beginning of corporate brand was really something about the consistency of palette and color palette and typography and. Grids and having it all feel like a family materials that came from a company to today, which everything, every touch point that your company has has to reflect the embody the I mean, everything about a brand from the leadership, from the culture, from the purpose. I mean, all those things that are a part of brand strategy really have to come through in every touch point, from a conversation, from someone answering the phone, to you know social media, to traditional media, to how you talk and what you talk about with your employees. It just really dramatically has changed so much. But what you're saying also is that. It moves the needle as far as people, people who want to work for people who want to buy from people, investors who want to invest in all of those things are now part of the proposition of what your company really stands for and what your higher purpose really is.
2: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And I think that there's also a much larger appetite. Conscious capitalism has been an amazing, you know, it's an amazing movement and it really stands up a theory. The challenge has become and where people are moving in and we certainly hear a lot about stakeholder capitalism is how do we take this and how do we actually do this work? You were talking like one of the aspects was operationalizing it. And the truth be known that it's really using a strategy and using the models. So stakeholder capitalism being one of them. And what does that really look like? How do you do that work? And that's, there's still that mystery out there. But I I wanted to mention something because I think it might serve the audience well, going back to the original question, can leaders, do they sort of inherently have these skills to be more conscious? Or is it something that they learn along the way? And I think we agree, there's a big epiphany part. We've got in stakeholder business, We really have the stories to inspire, we have community, and we also have programs to help people do this work, right, to take the mystery out of it. But what I wanted to bring up were these other domains of influence to help reach this tipping point, business education being one of them with the film Beyond Zero, that's been turned into curriculum that's used in major universities around the globe. And the purpose for doing that is to help MBA or future MBA students be prepared to enter the workforce, understanding what stakeholder capitalism means, how to actually do stakeholder business more particularly, um, working with organizations around sources of capital, working with the KKRs and all the others, banks, et cetera, so that they're on board and they begin to help make the ship. Professional associations, trade industry associations, all this work is happening. We've also got to look at the play of media Um, Our society members are being prepped up to actually be in the media in very significant ways. Those pieces are just starting to get out there, whether that be in film, podcasts, or articles, and then consultants, whether that be the really big consulting firms, more regional, local, independents. But it's going to take this kind of helping all of them come up to speed to begin to shift where we are. So that more and more companies we can get to that tipping point, which is going to be necessary. So the work that you're doing from branding perspective is so critical and in alignment and how to operationalize it is a very critical piece. Yeah.
1: I also thought when you brought up how tough times some people abandon some of these principles of operating the company. Certainly with ESG, we're sort of at a place with that I feel that that really comes into play, that people make these goals of being net zero, you know, by 2030 or whatever. But the minute that they get pressure for their short-term earnings and times are a little tough, all of a sudden, you know, we hear on earnings call that they're, you know, well, they're not really going to invest in renewable energy this quarter or this year, you know, that they're pulling back but how do you hold them accountable for seeing the goal that they're going to achieve this and be able to contribute being net zero? It's a difficult situation. And, and it really comes down, I guess, to the integrity, I mean, within the company.
2: Well, Nick, I believe that stakeholders are continuing to have a larger voice, right? Not just employees, suppliers, everybody is beginning to have a larger voice. And in that larger voice, there will be more transparency, more accountability, and the willingness not to abandon when it gets tough. There are great examples, I could rattle them all off, but even some small companies who really, it was a tough decision, for example, during COVID, I can think of a company who had to all their employees, what are they going to do? They're in swimming. They train like or work with over 7,000. They give over 7,000 swimming lessons per week to students in Miami, right? Wow. And so you'd be like, okay, now all of a sudden, imagine we're during COVID. We know what that's going to be like. So instead of just saying, okay, I'm going to ignore my employees, not going to pay them. She did everything. She, her name is Mira and Oka. She did everything she could do, but they also did some other things. They worked more on financial literacy. They worked more on other things that would help their staff continue to learn and grow. So to really partner with them, find out what their needs were to keep them engaged, um, not as workers and giving free work, but to help them through the pandemic. Interesting, they have a lot of employees. Uh, Some are part-time, many are full-time. And it's pretty fair to say, I believe that they may have, out of all their employees, they had 99% retention rate. Other companies during the pandemic, I know that are part of our society, or even during tough times when they had to downsize in certain areas, ended up coming out much stronger and much healthier because they did not abandon their commitments to their purpose. They stayed true to them. They stayed true to their values. They used them. These companies are the examples of what I would call a sustainable business model. Pretty extraordinary.
0: Well, I think you addressed that in the article you wrote that was published in Forbes, four critical steps to help your business thrive, not just survive. Yeah, we've talked about purpose and community, clear purpose, but you also talked about focus on reskilling or upskilling. sometimes referred to existing clients, and we have clients that are actively doing that today and it's not that they're in a bad place they're in a good place but they want to be in a better place right and keep an eye on the long term the long-term opportunities Yeah, I think every organization
2: whether it be their defined purpose or not from a cultural perspective we look at a result being engagement and we look at a lot of other measures right the reality is is it requires this intense culture of trust and care in which we are helping our employees certainly get their basic needs met, and hopefully more, and we're helping our employees be the best version of themselves. The key there being that it isn't just for the purpose of our own organizations, but how does that translate to their own family units? How does that translate to their community? How does that translate to organizations they belong to, whether it be church or whether it be any organization, societal, could be fraternal, whatever it may be, and so in this notion of helping to support employees in living a life in which they love, which is similar to the purpose of Bigby Coffee, so that happens to be their purpose, right? But the notion is that every organization really needs to be thinking that way because these are humans, and the care needs to be at the extent that these are humans. It doesn't matter if they're not performing, there are challenges that they're having. We don't abandon them. We find out what can we be doing to help them through these challenging times. The thing is, is we can't just spot do that. We have to actually, that has to be the way in which we operationalize. Because once we operationalize it, what begins to happen is other employees are also helping these individuals. It isn't just the company doing it. It's Everybody, all the stakeholders, yep. yeah, jump in, yeah, to help define this success.
0: But it well, it has inspiring. Well, it's it's part of your values. It's, it's part of your core beliefs, and that just guides your actions, your behaviors, and your mindsets in good times and bad. So,
2: yeah. I thought there was something I thought might be interesting because it may, you know, you may have a, an interesting take on this. Interface carpet back in 1994 when Ray said, you know, kind of came up with mouse sustainability. He absolutely forbade. I mean, it's like on film and everything, and it has held true in the company pretty much today. They could not tell the world what they were doing. And the reason he did that is he didn't wasn't concerned about failure. That doesn't mean they couldn't talk about wins and stuff, right? But it wasn't like to go out and say, oh, wow, we're climbing this mountain sustainability. We're doing this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. It was more around, let's not use it as a marketing ploy, Let's make sure that it, in fact, is essence of our organization. Yeah. This is who we are, and if this is who we are, then how it shows up in the brand wow. is going to be self-evident. He was yeah. very clear about that, and I'll say that we have 15 very distinct lessons from the Beyond Zero film. There's more than that, but very distinct, and they're they're not little lessons. Or there's a lot to that piece that happens to be one of the lessons, and it's interesting when in an audience of CEOs and sometimes other change makers. Frankly, they're quite shocked because it's not what they're doing. They're literally, and it's where I go back, it's my turn, I just stick with this trophy moment. There's so much involved in trying to talk about trophy moments when, in fact, many organizations may be doing something really good over here, and at the same time are doing nothing with regard to other stakeholders, in fact, may be doing things adverse to other stakeholders. I have to say that's a real difficult one for me because when I find those individuals, I can absolutely celebrate what they're doing. I need to help them begin to understand that that's the beginning, not the end. That's yeah. the beginning, you're starting it. It takes just one sense of progress. Let's find out what your purpose is, if you already have it. How are you really doing this? And how are you going to incrementally, you know, maybe incrementally, it's more about continuously putting in the effort to be able to show every day, every week, every month, every year, et cetera, some progress. Just start making it. It's not about going from A to Z. It's not also necessarily saying, I'm going to be full-fledged stakeholder business. I'm still learning this thing. I'm kind of curious. I've made a commitment this far, but I've got a lot of learning to do. And it's going to take more learning for me to up my commitment and realize that my responsibility, as, as example, as a level six leader, would say, not only am I now doing all this in my own organization, I'm also now doing it with other organizations. Not as a consultant, but like I'm literally helping other organizations do this in my industry, or it could be in my community. It could be I have another project that with I want with your suppliers. To with my suppliers, because the biggest thing with suppliers is in relationship to the other stakeholders is really saying, what is it that you need? Like inferring it, but understanding their purpose, identifying not their wants, but identifying their needs to help them improve product, to help them innovate, to help them think in ways in which there could be other markets. I believe that the notion I saw myself doing this early in my career was, oh, I'll give time. I was quite willing to give time, but it was always doing it as a self-serving way because I believe that's what needed to be done. Once I flipped the chart or the the, um, story in my head, once I flipped the story in my head and said, well, you know what, I'm not going to worry about me. I'm just going to figure out how I can help these companies be more successful. It came back exponentially. It was really extraordinary. Recently, there was a call. It was like a small peer group that I was in. It's just a conversation over like an hour time. Somebody was talking about referrals and what should you give for referrals and when should you give it and all that. And I said, you know, it's really interesting. I said... Over the years, I've tested something just for myself. I like to do experiments. And I said, what if I just never asked for referrals? Not just from clients, but anybody. What if I just never asked for them? What if I just literally spent more time connecting with those people and finding out what their needs were? And maybe I give them referrals, but understand their needs and help them solve problems, help them become, you know, a better business, a more sustainable business, whatever it may be. The notion in doing that was all of a sudden business started coming in faster, deeper, very trust-like, loyal. We were really connected. Where I learned that from was around the dining room table growing up as a pretty young kid starting at age 10. My father frequently would bring customers in, would bring suppliers in, manufacturers, reps, whoever it may be, competitors. My dad loved his competitors. He had very strong relationships, and I mean direct competitors, and bring him in. We'd have these convert, he'd have conversations around dining room table. My father would never ask people to do something for him. He was always trying to figure out how he could help them, and mm-hmm. he was very successful very quickly. Mm-hmm. And the story was my father started his company with one thousand dollars. Wow! And every supplier, because he had such a strong reputation, gave him everything. So it was a restaurant equipment and supplies, and blah 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 blah. Kind of a big enterprise. And they all gave it to him on consignment. They did all these amazing things. Why? Because he had, people always say it's in a relationship. It's so much more than the relationship. Yeah. You can have a great relationship with this person. Wait, We know what a real, loyal, trusted relationship looks like. Go back to like Fred Reichold's work. It would look more like I'm selling restaurant supplies and all of a sudden, why are they asking me? Who I should call to get my roof repaired, right? You no, know, great. And so that really, that trusted relationship is so deep and so connected and so symbiotic that all of a sudden begin to work with each other. And for my dad, his suppliers, his customers, and so on actually became by default his advisory board.
0: Yeah. Well, isn't that the goal of every brand and yeah. company? And people just saw things in your father that were just, people want to be a part of and you get a way of creating believers. And that's what we try to help people do is find those intrinsic qualities that are good and of goodness. And people want to be a part of those things. And Mm -hmm. Sounds like your father had, had those qualities.
1: I think also listening and empathy that, that, that that's something that you're really talking about. That's the basis of the relationship rather than what can you do for me and what can I do for you. I also thought something you had said earlier was really nailing it when a lot of this people just see as marketing opportunity instead of it being something intrinsic, you know, baked within and showing itself in multiple ways.
2: I still hear, and I'm not going to necessarily say these are the people that I'm working with today, but I still hear so often people looking to go through a branding exercise and I'll listen on the peripheral or I might be somewhere in a conversation, more like over a cocktail party or something where there's a lot of CEOs. And at the end of the day, when I'm hearing about it, it's always tied to revenue. It's always like I'm doing it because I want more revenue. And I find that very, very short-sighted. We want revenue, right? Revenue is part of the engine to help this model work. And the better that we do, the more good that we can do. But I always find that there's so much missing in thinking about capitalism in action is really about other measures as well. And so we've got to look at, and companies need to be paying a lot more attention to the qualitative measures, not just the quantitative, but the qualitative measures. And it frankly is still very difficult. Most organizations really struggle with it. We fortunately have been working with it for a while. We don't have it nailed either. We're all learning. But it's so important because those other measures are actually the ones that truly help us create what I would call a better definition of success across yeah. the world.
0: Yeah, and it's really counterintuitive to a lot of people. And that's a the AHA uh-huh, needs to really come in. And just uh, not focus on it. We're very fortunate. Uh, we're in Santa Monica, California, right now, and up the coast of Ventura. There's a guy named Yvonne Chouinard, and he started his company, Patagonia. And we yeah. you know in this, in our world, he's a legend, but he had that core purpose and lived and breathed it every day and took yeah. care of his people and did what he thought was right for the planet and all the people. He wanted to make a high quality, a durable product that was of value, maybe charge a few dollars more. And when it wears out, you could take it back and they'll fix it for you. And he was an original and he's it's a, what a business model. Yeah. Well,
1: and he puts his money
0: where his mouth is just recently yeah. committing the
1: most of the value of the company, not to his, his family, but to these principles that he stands for.
2: Yeah. And, the, and the way in which he did it was also brilliant because it will actually be sustainable, meaning the way in which the money was transferred. And yes. so, because others have tried that and it's not worked. But this is, I mean, you could say it's the first time it's been done, but it's already very evident. It's going to be highly successful. I love Patagonia. I have my own stories, which absolutely amaze me. I'm not going to repeat it, but it's a story that I sometimes have used. And it was a real testament to the brand I also happen to be a big Orbis fan. Um, Of course, I'm here in Vermont. I've always been an Orbis fan. I'm a fly fisherman as well. So that's been a great attractor. And they've really done some great work also and taken, I would say, some cues, frankly, from Patagonia. Wouldn't be surprised, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, to me, it's really interesting that people first sort of orientation, how that really changes the disengagement Factor. And in most companies, that the majority of companies, as you say, you know, we're lucky if we ever get to that 16% practicing conscious capitalism. But for the majority of the rest, the percentage of people engaged in their job hasn't moved in years, no matter what they've done, because it's all been so. Short term oriented towards profits, not listening and helping employees to really engage, you know, and feel like this company has my back. I'm given an extra, extra above and beyond my job description. So, I mean, there's that. But I also wanted to ask you about the employee ownership. And have you seen companies that have been able to? transform to really, when it it wasn't there and baked in from the beginning. We have one company that we are working with. They're unbelievable, but that's been baked in for a hundred, over a hundred years. And that employee ownership and their stock performs, they keep innovating, they keep moving. But what if it isn't baked in for a hundred years? How do you get there?
2: Yeah, well, more and more companies are moving in that direction. It's extremely encouraging because um, all of the measures of success and the definition of success are being achieved. And it's not always easy, right, because there's a lot of learning along the way. Not all story is going to be exactly the same, but there's some commonalities. There's a manufacturing company that we work with that not that long ago, I'm going to guess maybe two years ago, transferred over to employee ownership. And they're not a huge, well, they're not a small manufacturing company, but they're not huge. And in that particular company, the employees are real. So we have a film on it. So it's part of a film that we're chronicling, which means over five, at least five years, we will chronicle this company. There are shorts, and then it will probably be turned into a pilot in a miniseries, end up on like a Netflix or something, probably very likely. And in that, what we're starting to see is that the employees are in fact showing up in new ways. They have great pride. They understand they have a stake in this particular organization. They all have an idea of what this is worth. And they're not looking at million like I'm going to get $10 million. What they're talking about is how do we take the majority of employees who are really hourly workers? How do we move them so that all of a sudden, they have something as a result of their investment of time and energy. And we're going to see more and more. We're tracking them. I can't speak to which ones right now. It's a little bit out of school, but we are tracking them and we will be doing more films on them. Another film that we just completed is on a company that has three locations. And in those three locations, the employees, all again, mostly hourly employees, really were able to step up and put in their full energy because the owner of those locations made sure their basic needs were met, started elevating them, started doing the work that needed to be done so that engagement became really high. But the owner did it because he felt it was the right thing to do. So somebody's car broke down. He's heard those stories all the time. They had a hard time getting to work. So he made it possible for them to get the deposit to be able to buy their new car. We've heard these stories all the time. This owner just naturally did this because they believed it was the right thing to do. What's interesting is it's actually been a financial win because he has not only had one location to begin with, but he's replicated it two times over about six years, five or six years. So he'd be very profitable to expand his business so, But he doesn't do it for the purpose of actually making more money to go do that. He does this because he believes it's the right thing to do and it pays. Well, it's a whole lot easier to go to sleep, isn't it, if we have a strong purpose and we live our purpose and our values. And I have um, believed strongly that the most strategic decision that a CEO can make, and especially an entrepreneur, but any CEO can make is that of their higher purpose. If you nail your higher purpose, which requires a lot of testing, as we know, and stuff, but you nail your higher purpose, that's the most strategic decision. Because every day I wake up, like I have it, I keep my own uh, values for our company printed. I know them. But the first one is return to purpose. Like just return to purpose. It's really extraordinary. Return to purpose and everything is going to work well because we have the most perfect guide. we
0: That's what I believe in. Well, that's a great segue to kind of jump to the last question here because I think we could do this for hours. Uh, so, yeah, five years from now, we're doing this podcast again. And we're talking about conscious capitalism. What context are we talking about? What has evolved or changed around conscious capitalism? Yeah. So
2: some of the things that I can think of, we're actually working on these within our own organization and working with our advisors, which some of those are founding circle society members, would be things like what does it mean for homelessness, poverty, and domestic violence? We'd like to, where right now we have this penciled in, it's down by 50% using a baseline of 2020. And that happens to be out by actually the time frame we said, five years. So we're talking about that. We're also talking about the international supply chains, the number of people in the world who are currently living on less than $2 a day dropped to less than 50%. Humanity has passed P-carbon in Earth's total kind of carbon emissions. You know, it's declined by, we don't yet know. We're, we're trying to work with some experts to help us define that, but that's certainly a really key measurement and as I said, 16% of U S companies, and it's really with 1 billion or more in revenue have signed on to stakeholder business, not just stakeholder capitalism, but specifically stakeholder business. We have other metrics we use, but they're more about how many people do we need to touch to see that happen? That can be CEOs. That could be entrepreneurs. That can be through the educational programs that we have, et cetera. Well, I think
1: educating the future leaders is a a really, really important, important aspect.
2: Yeah, very, very important. It's very enlightening to go in. I'm in the audience oftentimes when we're screening Beyond Zero, whether it be an academic institution or to a bunch of CEOs, In the academic institution, people are just absolutely blown away. There's a lot of tears that shed. The film is screened. Many, many tears are shed. Uh, People are just very surprised that it's actually what they would have perceived as impossible because it appeared to be impossible. What Interface did appeared to be impossible to everybody. But it is possible. And now we're seeing more and more possibilities. So when I talked about, you know, inspiring films, podcasts, and articles – I'm not talking just a trophy moment but to actually show what is it that they set out to do over this long period of time chronicle it where were the challenges you know interface made a 10 million dollar investment and literally they lost their money and they lost time but you know that's what had to happen in order to get to innovation they did get to points of innovation that now and not just recently but you know changed the entire industry and they are the first company to actually reach because this isn't really my bailiwick, so I always have to kind of reference this, that they've achieved net zero carbon emissions across scope one, two, and three. They're the first company in the world to do it. Well, you can't deny that it's possible. It is possible. And they didn't set out like, oh, we have to do this by this date. They did set some things. They looked very much at what can we continuously be doing, measure this incremental improvement, celebrate the progress we're making. Don't look at how far we have to go. Let's celebrate how far we've come. And that's a real distinct difference. why I don't use goals. I tend to use more of the terminology of targets and use targets. And they can certainly be more like smart to some extent, but use these targets because goals can be so specific that they actually can hold back innovation. Like we may miss the goal. We need to like figure out, yeah. A- what is it we're really trying to do here? It's usually bigger than a goal. And certainly some targets could have some sub goals. Well, you can land in
0: a better place. Yeah. And absolutely. maybe what that goal was, but I think to your point, a target gives you direction and focus, but going through that process that, hey, I hate use this word journey, but if there's there are detours. And it's how you deal with those detours and what those, roadblocks or whatever or those hurdles and and where you land up really appreciate your time today this has been a conversation that we've been wanting to have with someone for a long time thank you for that thank you forward to talking with you
1: again thank you yeah
2: i look forward to it as well it's been really pleasant and i want to continue to learn so this will be great thank you so much for inviting me great
0: great we'll be getting back to you take Take care care. okay Bye-bye.
1: Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing.
0: It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to BakerBrand.com.
1: See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.